Welcome to episode 152 of FBI Retired Case File Review of Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and the personal case reviews of my former colleagues who served in the FBI. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Bob Clifford, who served with the FBI for 24 years. He rose from special agent to senior executive with responsibilities in international terrorism and transnational criminal gang matters. In this episode, Bob Clifford reviews an extraterritorial jurisdiction case from early in his career when he worked as a technical advisor embedded with the Bolivian police counterterrorism team seeking to capture the terrorists responsible for murdering two Mormon missionaries. Bob is the recipient of numerous awards and decorations to include the FBI Director's Award for Counterterrorism, the Director of National Intelligence Commendation Award, an Award of Excellence from the National Counterterrorism Executive, and the Bolivian National Police Medal of Merit. In 2004, he received the Service to America Medal and was named Federal Employee of the Year. Bob Clifford was previously interviewed on this podcast about his investigation and capture of the only surviving hijacker responsible for the hijacking of Egypt Air Flight 648, that's episode 96 and 97, and about his special assignment to establish the FBI's MS-13 National Gang Task Force, that's episode 103. I want to give a special shout out to Bob trying to do a weekly podcast with 50 episodes each year sometimes can be a struggle. And it's great to have friends like Bob who will step in at the last minute and provide a fascinating case review. So thanks, Bob. If you're a retired agent listening to this episode, please know that I'm always looking for great cases to review. Just email me at author at gmail.com. Just two quick things before we get to the interview. First of all, I sent out my February reader team email on Monday. So check your inbox. If it's not in there, then I guess you got to check your spam filter and perhaps whitelist that email address so that your email provider knows that you want to hear from me. If you're not yet a member of my reader team to join, all you need to do is go to my website, jerrywilliams.com. Or if you're listening to this on a podcast app that supports links, then you can join right in the description of this episode. The other thing that I wanted to let you know, the highly anticipated FBI recruitment Q&A will be posted hopefully next week. I'm actually scheduled to do the interview on Tuesday, and I hope to quickly turn that around and post it the very next day in the late evening. For those who subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, you'll be able to download that episode as soon as I post it. But for those who listen by way of a social media link, you won't see that link until Thursday morning. 
After my interview with Bob Clifford, I hope you stick around. I have two recommendations for you. One is a crime novel and the other is a podcast event for listeners in the Philadelphia area. Thank you. Here's the show. I am excited to invite back for the third time, Bob Clifford. Hi, Bob. How are you? Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. First, we talked about Flight 638, and then we talked about MS-13. And this time, we're going to be talking about Latin American terrorism, specifically about a case involving Mormon missionary murders. Jerry, thank you very much. You know, today we hear so much about terrorism uh, in the Middle East and in Europe, and a lot of it is focused on, on radical Islamic terrorism. So, you know, how does Latin American terrorism, you know, come into the picture? Believe it or not, uh, in, up until the 1980s, there were more attacks against Americans and U.S. interests in Latin America than the rest of the world combined. Wow. And what's interesting, Jerry, and I think it's important for all of us to see is that in our own hemisphere, in Latin America and Central America, there are many countries whose leaders were at one time members of Marxist terrorist groups that kidnapped or killed Americans. Most of their activities were fueled by anti-American sentiment? That's correct. Uh, Jerry, the anti-American sentiment throughout Latin America in many ways was engendered and fostered by the legacy of Ernesto Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. They had looked upon the Cuban revolution as something to spread throughout this hemisphere, throughout Latin America, with direct and tacit or moral support from the Soviet Union and later Russia. Che Guevara was a, uh, an Argentinian guerrilla, uh, handsome, charismatic, well-educated, uh, a devout Marxist. And he saw the, you know, the abject poverty of, of Latin America. And he said, if you have the capacity to tremble every time there's an injustice in the world, somos hermanos, we're brothers. And also, he'd look at the, uh, the situation in Latin America, he said, we here are poor because the Americans are rich. And with that kind of forceful ideology, uh, several guerrilla and uh, terrorist groups were formed throughout Latin America. Almost every country in Central and South America had some type of guerrilla or terrorist group targeting Americans. Uh, some of the most prominent existed in Colombia. They had the, the ELN or, or the FARC. And the FARC to this day has collected millions upon millions of dollars in war taxes that they, that they uh, have gotten from the drug cartels. In Uruguay, the Tupamaros actually kidnapped and killed a retired FBI agent working for the Agency for International Development. And what's concerning to me is that a former guerrilla of this group, Jose Mujica, is now the president of Uruguay. In Peru, you had the Sendero Luminoso, or Shining Path, which is actually a, a Maoist a group, which fought Peru almost to, to the brink of total war with their terrorist attacks throughout the country. And in Nicaragua, uh, we had the Sandinistas. The president of Nicaragua today is the Sandinista leader, Daniel Ortega, and he, is, he and his wife now have a Castro-style dictatorship in Nicaragua. And then in Honduras, you had the Morzanista Patriotic Front, 
or FPM. Jerry, if I can, I'd like to recount an incident that I had with the FPM and some of the complexities of working counterterrorism in Latin America. Several years ago, a, a an American military unit was doing some humanitarian projects uh, in Honduras. They were building roads, uh, repairing schools, things like that. One afternoon, uh, this convoy of Air Force uh, personnel were driving through the mountains back to their base. They rounded a corner, and then suddenly there were hooded terrorists, and they fired upon this uh, convoy with uh, machine gun fire, with shotguns, with grenades, seriously wounding 28 young American men and women service people. The FBI sent me down there to, uh, to work with the Honduran authorities to try to find out who conducted this attack. One afternoon, I was in an open Jeep uh, in that same area. Uh, we rounded a corner, and then suddenly before us were hooded individuals with a rope stretched across the road. The driver yelled, ambush, ambush. And I picked up uh, an M4, I had a machine gun, to shoot the first person who draw a weapon. The driver accelerated. We went right through the, uh, the, the roadblock uh, and no shots were fired. When I got back to the American embassy in the capital city of Tegucigalpa, I reported this to the regional security officer at the American embassy. And he told me, Bob, do you know what date is today? And I said, uh, Friday, I think it's Friday. And he said, it's Good Friday, the Friday before Easter. In Honduras, it's a tradition for the children of villages to put hoods on their head and stretch ropes across the road to ask for handouts, candy, change from motorists. What did I learn from that experience is that in Latin America, nothing is as it seems. Wow. You must know the environment you're working in. You must know the culture, the traditions, the language, because taking action on something that you thought might make sense or be logical could have ramifications you never imagined. There was a possibility that you could have fired and shot a child. Jerry, that's exactly right, because in the FBI, you're taught, you know, to, to react to the situation, to, to quickly assess what's happening, to look for that first weapon. And given the circumstances, just a, a week before, there had been a terrorist attack of a very similar, uh, very similar situation, a very similar location environment. There were hooded individuals. They were trying to stop the Jeep. So very quickly and thankfully, the situation was assessed. I didn't see any weapons uh, uh, displayed as we accelerated and drove through that roadblock. But I do not want to think what would have happened if I would have reacted, you know, to, to try to neutralize what I envisioned or what I thought might have been a terrorist threat. Wow. You know, be, before you move on, could you tell us a little bit more of the circumstances that, that brought you to Bolivia? It, it sounds like this is early in your career. It, it was. Uh, actually, the situation I just uh, spoke about, Jerry, that happened one year to the day that I had graduated from the FBI Academy in Quantico. I was uh, 31 years old. I uh, had been in the FBI for exactly one year. I often tell uh, this, uh, this incident to young agents to say, when you're coming out of the FBI Academy, you had better be prepared to react to react quickly 
and to draw upon every skill you have been taught because you never know what kind of situation you'll face. Normally, that's not the type of an assignment that a brand new FBI agent would expect to receive. Did Were you expecting to receive that type of an assignment to well, deal with uh, terrorists and, and uh, um, yeah. Well, you know, Jerry, I, I felt very fortunate. Like many people in the FBI, I, I came to the FBI from a military background. Before the FBI had served um, in the Navy as a naval officer, first on destroyers, and then later on as an intelligence officer for uh, the Navy special warfare teams. And so I had already been involved in counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, special operations planning. And during college, I had studied in Latin America. I speak Spanish and have a great uh, interest in the history and culture of Latin America. And so when I graduated from Quantico, I was assigned to the Washington field office for their, their extraterritorial uh, terrorism squad to handle some of these new terrorist cases that were coming out of Latin America because I could operate independently, I felt comfortable in Latin America, and I spoke Spanish. But, you know, you, you ask about Bolivia, Jerry. What a fascinating country. It's a landlocked country in the center of South America of enormous geographical diversity. There are snow-covered mountain ranges of 23,000 feet elevation and all the way down to, to steamy tropical jungles and then the cold, windswept, treeless high plain called uh, the Altiplano. And this is where La Paz, the capital, is located. And it's located at an elevation of 12,600 feet. It's a very, very harsh country. And the population of Bolivia is 95% indigenous. So most of the population are being direct descendants of the ancient Indian cultures and empires. Uh, it's interesting for many, Spanish is their second language, uh, with Quechua or Imana being their first language. Uh, having Being a, a student of Spanish in Bolivia is interesting that the Spanish that they spoke is very similar to the, the old Spanish that the conquistadores spoke uh, because the language really has not changed too much because, again, the daily language of most of the people is Aymara or Quechua. But perhaps the most important aspect here is that next to Haiti, Bolivia is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And this discontent, this anger at centuries of, of discrimination and exploitation made and makes Bolivia a ripe location for a revolution or rebellion. Well, let me ask you this. We don't hear a lot about Bolivia. We, we hear mainly about Haiti. Uh, what type of um, natural resources do they have that can be exploited in Bolivia? Well, it's such a, a diverse country, uh, but perhaps Bolivia is best known for its silver and its gold mines. As a matter of fact, in the city of Potosí, which is, again, high in the Altiplano, um, they had an incredible, an incredible silver mine that was mined and exploited by forced labor by the Spanish, and it, with, it, it resulted in incredible wealth, you know, shiploads of silver that went back to Spain. So you have gold, you have silver, you have uh, other minerals. Uh, within the jungles, you have uh, different types of agriculture. And perhaps today, uh, unfortunately, 
Their biggest crop, Jerry, is the coca leaf, which the coca leaf is, uh, when put together with other chemicals, is used to make cocaine. Okay. Okay. Now, now I'm getting it. Now I'm getting yeah. it. And, and so it's in this, this um, situation, this environment of poverty, of anger, of discontent, that Che Guevara came. And looking at Bolivia, he was confident that this would be the perfect place to stage a, a Cuban-style revolution. However, the, the revolution never really took effect. And actually, Che Guevara was, uh, was, was killed by the Bolivian army. Uh, in 1967. But because of that, Che Guevara represents an incredible uh, vision, a credible example of liberation, of power, of seizing by force the government and, and, and industry for the people. It's a, an undercurrent that exists every single day. And with that, there are several groups in Bolivia, but one in particular. In August 1988, uh, Secretary of State George Schultz and his wife had just landed in Bolivia for an official state visit. They were in their motorcade uh, driving from the airport down into uh, La Paz when suddenly a bomb was detonated just seconds after uh, the Schultz vehicle passed. Now, this bomb uh, caused uh, damage to their vehicle and to several others in the motorcade, but no injuries resulted. I would say that George Schultz and his wife escaped death by just seconds. Wow. A communique was issued in the press and claiming the attack was carried out by the armed revolutionary force Zarate Wilka and demanding that all U.S. and other capitalistic influences immediately leave Bolivia. And they issued an ominous warning. The Zarate Wilka said, other attacks are imminent. And exactly who is this uh, Zarata Wilka? Yes, Zarate Wilka. Zarate Wilka uh, was an Aymara, an Indian, a military leader who called for social equality and justice for what they call the Bolivian campesinos or indigenous country people uh, at the end of the 19th century. He also was very vocal, very disciplined, very charismatic and eventually mobilized, really, a, a large armed rebellion against the Bolivian government. He was demanding rights for the, the workers, demanding rights for the miners, demanding ownership of, of businesses. And you know what? He had great success and was very close to overthrowing the Bolivian government uh, in 1902. However, he was eventually captured, and Zarat Wilka died under mysterious circumstances in prison in 1905. But because of that, he continues to this day to be a symbol of empowerment for the poor and workers. Really, what is the Indian resistance against corrupt and non-caring government? I take it that that attack on the Schultz, is, is, is that something that would have been investigated? And if so, would it be the FBI? And, and could you explain how the FBI would get involved in an attack in a foreign country? Certainly, certainly. Up until late 1985, if an American was killed or kidnapped uh, outside the United States for political reasons, for terrorism, um, there was really nothing 
the U.S. government could do as far as mounting a prosecution, as far as investigations, as far as arrests. And so towards the end of 1985, the U.S. Congress passed what was called our Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Statutes. And it basically says, if an American is kidnapped or killed or attempted to be killed uh, outside the United States in a foreign country by terrorists for political reasons, then the FBI has the jurisdiction to go to that foreign country and either work with the local authorities to bring them to trial in their own country, or if that is not possible, either the country cannot do it or does not want to do it, then the FBI has the authority to bring that terrorist or terrorist back to the United States to stand trial in a US court of law. But I have to say, most of these investigations are very difficult. Um, the reason being is that these cases, because they have the potential to be tried in the United States, must be pursued uh, as if the attack occurred in Los Angeles, New York. You have rules of evidence, you have um, the chain of custody, you have Miranda rights, everything that applies to a case uh, in Bolivia or, or in Greece um, would have the same demands and requirements uh, to be tried in the United States. And that's why um, it's always preferable that the FBI assist and help that country where Americans were attacked to put them in their own justice system. But the U.S. always pursues it with an eye towards, do we have an option to prosecute if something falls apart in that country? For this case in Bolivia, you can imagine the difficulties in a poor country and also being 4,000 miles away um, you know, from where the trial would occur, which was would be in Washington, D.C., if it was chosen to be tried there. Yeah, I do want to remind everybody that I did an interview with Oliver buck uh, at where he talks about having, I think at the time he was an assistant director with the FBI, and he talks about having one of the very first cases that used this extraterritorial jurisdiction. So um, I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes so they can learn a little bit more about the uh, uh, origins of that uh, statute. Is it a statute? I guess it. It is, and Jerry, you're absolutely right. That was the the Fawaz Yunus case in which um, a a terrorist was taken into custody by the FBI off the coast of Lebanon and then transported back to the United States to stand trial. And that was the precedent-setting case for extraterritorial jurisdiction. With this attack now having occurred in Bolivia. Uh, and because now it is under FBI jurisdiction, the FBI offered and the offer was accepted by Bolivia to deploy a team of FBI investigators, uh, both from uh, the United States and from the FBI legal attache office at the U.S. Embassy in Montevideo, Uruguay. They worked very closely with uh, the Bolivian authorities, but no leads were developed and no suspects were identified. Um, and the investigation really went nowhere. And so several months passed and no further communiques or actions uh, were conducted by the Zarate Wilka. Then on the evening of May 29th, 1989, several months later, two young Mormon missionaries 
Jeffrey Brant Ball and Todd Ray Wilson, both from Utah, uh, were returning to their apartment in La Paz after having been out for the day. They were trying to open their apartment when suddenly a, a Volkswagen drives by, uh, driven by a woman. A man steps out with a machine gun and at point blank range shoots both Mormon missionaries to death. The Zarate Wilka issued a communique accusing the two of being agents of the CIA and corrupting the indigenous people. And just like before, it demands an immediate departure of all U.S. and Western influences uh, from Bolivia and calls for the immediate establishment of a Cuban-style revolutionary government in Bolivia. At this time, are, are there a lot are there a lot of missionaries, uh, Mormon missionaries in Bolivia? And was this attack because of uh, anti-Mormon or anti-religion? Or was it just pure anti-American and they just happened to be the Americans that uh, were attacked? This particular attack, based on the communique and what we found out, was against the United States with uh the two missionaries representing the U.S. because they suspected them to be CIA officers. But Jerry, it's interesting you ask that. During the same time period throughout Latin America, there were uh, several assaults, several attacks on Mormon missionaries and uh, firebombing and um, other types of destruction of Mormon churches. Uh, As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, soon after this attack on Jeffrey Brandt Ball and Todd Ray Wilson, uh, one or two other Mormon missionaries in Peru, not Americans, but Peruvian, uh, were also killed. And so you're absolutely right. During this time period throughout Latin America, it was a very dangerous time for these young missionaries. I do have an, uh, an article that I found preparing for this interview from the Boston Globe, and it talks about uh, Mormons face Latin attacks. And what's interesting about the article is that it has a really good map of, of South America and it breaks down you know, some of the terrorist activities. So I'm going to make sure that I also include this in the show notes because I think it will give um, you know, some perspective to what you're talking about uh, for this particular case review. So I take it then that the FBI is going to open up an investigation into the murders of these two missionaries. That is correct. FBI technical assistance is immediately deployed to Bolivia. It's interesting, at this time, uh, the Bolivian police had little to no laboratory equipment. I believe they only had a single microscope and some fingerprint kits. Again, this is a very, very poor country, uh, the lack of any type of really strong police infrastructure or tradition. Uh, The FBI again deploys investigators and forensic experts to La Paz. It's interesting, during the crime scene that they're assisting the uh, the Bolivians with, they recover several shell casings from a nine millimeter uh, machine gun that was used in the attack. The FBI examines it and they determine that this weapon, some of this ammunition, was actually from the 1930s made in Germany. And what we determined is that during one of the many border wars that Bolivia had with its neighbors, uh, several German advisors came to Bolivia uh, with equipment, with ammunition, with weapons to advise and assist the Bolivians against, you know, their, their neighbors in these wars they had. And a lot of this equipment is still 
floating around Bolivia. And as a matter of fact, because of the German influence on the police and the army, to this day, and I've seen it, the army and police, uh, when they march, they goose step, much like uh, the Germans would do during World War II. Oh, that had to be pretty disturbing to see. It's just very, it's fascinating. Uh, as I said, you have to understand the culture, the history of, of Latin America to fully appreciate it. But it was, Jerry, it was quite uh, unusual to see goose-stepping soldiers and police. Plus uh, the weapons. You said 1930s. We're talking 1989, so. Yes, uh, you know, some of the ammunition, of course, uh, had been dated. But uh, the, the machine guns themselves, uh, and the, again, the FBI has an incredible collection of, of weaponry, uh, they were able to, to definitively ascertain exactly where it came from and when it, uh, when it arrived in Bolivia. It's a, a fascinating uh, aspect of this investigation. You know, because we were wondering, you know, where these weapons come from? That's something you always track in a terrorist investigation. And in this particular instance, uh, the weaponry used by the Zarathi Wilka was indigenous, you know, was um, uh, parochial to Bolivia. The other types of investigative assistance, the, the FBI assisted what was really a, a quite a talented um, sketch artist, and he was able to provide two very good composite sketches of the driver and the shooter who, that attacked the, uh, the Mormon missionaries. The investigation continues, and an informant comes forward uh, and identifies who the shooter and the driver are. The shooter was Johnny Peralta, and uh, the driver was Susana Zapana Hanover. Now, Susana Zapana Hanover, she had actually been a member of the Mormon church who had been excommunicated, was a radical uh, Marxist, and espoused very, very uh, hostile intentions towards the Mormon church. Was she American or Bolivian? Bolivian. All these people were Bolivian activists. Two others who were identified as in the planning were Victor Prieto and Simon Mamani. And as I mentioned, all were determined to have been part of a radical student activist cell uh, in La Paz. Uh, Johnny Peralta, the assassin of the missionaries, was the group's leader. And Johnny had a a lengthy criminal history of armed robbery, assault, and other crimes. Uh, you know, Jerry, and this is something we've mentioned in previous podcasts. You know, what is the background of, of a terrorist? And in the 22 years that I was involved in terrorism in the FBI, this is almost a, a common denominator. You will have, could be Belgian-born Moroccans in Belgium, or in this case, Bolivians who initially get involved in a life of crime, petty crime, assaults, robbery. And then in order to, uh, to justify their activities, in order to pour their, their frustrations, their anger, their hatred into something, they then are steered towards political activism and then into terrorism. And I've seen this with the backgrounds of terrorists uh, really throughout the world. It starts out with criminal activity, and then they find a way to legitimize their activities, and then they fall into a, um, a radical type of, of terrorist ideology. You know, having identified the Zarat Wilka, the United States and the FBI are able to 
uh, secure uh, funds for a reward. And wanted posters are printed by the FBI and distributed throughout Bolivia. Um, one of the four, Simon Mamani, he soon located and arrested, but he absolutely refuses to cooperate in any way. And the other four, Peralta, the shooter, Susana Sapana, the driver, and uh, Victor Prieto, uh, they literally disappear. So this investigation is starting to stall. No more leads are, are coming up. And adding to this, this uh, unfortunate situation, in early 1990, an election is held in Bolivia, and the presidency goes to a leftist candidate and former Marxist activist named Jaime Paz Zamora. It's interesting because Zamora's brother, Nestor Paz Zamora, was a guerrilla fighter with Che Guevara. He was part of that insurgency movement. And Nestor Pazamora died trying to establish a communist state in Bolivia. And now so, his brother is... <laughs> and now his brother, who was a well-known and very articulate uh, leftist activist, is now the president of Bolivia. And there is a feeling that this new government just really was not supportive of continuing you know, the investigation into the Mormon missionary murders or, or really anything else that might have a... Um, you know, a U.S. nexus to. So, Jerry, this is a situation that I faced uh, in May of 1990. Uh, I was a, a first office agent at Washington Field Office and a, members, a member of the Bureau's only extraterritorial terrorism squad. Uh, a lot of us were on that squad because of our either military experience, language capabilities, these types of things, because we would go really throughout the world to investigate attacks against Americans. We had German speakers, French speakers, I spoke Spanish, uh, et cetera. So it was, it was a very, a very, very interesting and a great, a great squad. One day I was called to FBI headquarters and basically told, go to Bolivia and capture the terrorists and prosecute them in Bolivian court. And, and you it, said, okay. Well, <laughs> if, if Bolivia could not or would not prosecute them, I was to ensure that U.S. prosecution, you know, was was preserved. And so I, I look at this, and, and as he said, I said, okay. And on the drive home from Washington Field, I tried to think of what I'm going to tell my wife, Deirdre. And uh, I we just got married a year earlier after graduating from the FBI Academy. Uh, this was a tough one. <laughs> now, this, this, is, this is not the situation. You had already been in South America once before that time that you were talking about being on a convoy with the Air Force. This is not the same situation. That's correct. That, that, the, the Air Force situation happened. It was the first time when I was on the squad that I went to, uh, uh, to Latin America. Okay. Uh, that was in April. All right. So now, you're get a, now you must have done really well because now they want you to go to South <laughs> America again. So, so it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Bureau, you do, some, you do something once and suddenly you're an expert. So true. So true. So, you know, I said, like any new agent, okay. And then figure out how to explain this to my wife. Obviously, it worked out well. And I flew to Bolivia to capture <laughs> these terrorists. And that was it. Uh, upon arrival in Bolivia, I set up an office in the embassy and immediately established close relationships with uh, the embassy regional security officer of the Diplomatic Security Service and uh, other key U.S. embassy partners. 
uh, I began to coordinate and leverage the resources and expertise of several US government entities. And simultaneously, I embedded myself as a technical advisor into a newly formed 20-member counterterrorism team of Bolivian police. Uh, this team was called um, the Center for Special Police Investigations, or the CEIP, by its Spanish initials. And was this team supported by the new president? To a certain degree, it was. Um, it was because of the rise, because of this terrorist attack, because of other types of uh, attacks throughout Bolivia, there was a, a demonstrated need to form a special team of trained police because it was not just Americans who were targets of different attacks. Uh, police stations were being bombed, uh, government buildings. And so the Bolivian government uh, felt that with, in its own interest, uh, it has to have some kind of counterterrorism capability. And this was the first time that, that a special unit uh, had been established. And this special unit was, in fact, trained and supported by the FBI. So you're going down as a technical advisor. How did the FBI help you and train you to do that job? Well, Jerry, a lot of it were, were expectations. Uh, obviously, you have your basic, you know, I've not been in the FBI that long. Uh, you have your Quantico training. Uh, some of the limited experience I had some, from other deployments I made with the FBI, for example, to Honduras, uh, I drew upon my experience in the military uh, and other, other kinds of, of and my knowledge of Spanish, my knowledge of Spanish culture uh, and history. And so I embedded myself. I had a, uh, I was a member, um, you know, I had a special identification card. Uh, I was a senior ranking officer. Uh, called uh, Assessor Technical, uh, Technical Advisor. And I basically was shoulder to shoulder with this new police unit. And what did I have to offer? I had to offer what the FBI was able to provide. And that is training, training in case management, training in handle, how to handle investigative leads, uh, we had a team that came down and assisted with training in surveillance, criminal surveillance, self-defense tactics. A significant emphasis was placed on forensics, crime scene examination, evidence preservation, fingerprints, firearms. And because it's such a poor country, the donation of laboratory equipment, of vehicles that were provided both by the FBI and by the United States government as a whole, went a long way in, uh, in really establishing this ape as an elite, effective, investigative counterterrorism unit. Well, let me interrupt one more time and ask a question. Sure. This anti-American sentiment that uh, was obvious from the guerrillas and, and the terrorists, was that something that the actual people felt how receptive was the government to the FBI coming in and providing all of this? And was it something that we did to benefit us as a, a law enforcement agency as well? Well, I think we have to, to see that uh, as, as a definite factor. Uh, and Jerry, this happens in more countries and more situations than, than really most would imagine. You know, the United States will have a presence in a country. Uh, the FBI will have a legal attache office there. And yet the government in power may not necessarily be friendly to all 
U.S. interests, uh, U.S. initiatives, or ideology. But in this particular case, Bolivia, again, being a poor country and Bolivia being the recipient of some very, very significant U.S. foreign aid, aid in crop substitution, you know, to try to eradicate the, the coca production, aid in, in water projects, health projects, a vast array of foreign aid projects, uh, in government institution building. And I think this, taken as a whole, was looked upon favorably by the Bolivian government because what do most governments want? They want stability. They want an effective response uh, and judicial system to, to deal with um, insurgencies or, or terrorists. And so even though I would submit the official government in Bolivia at the time was not necessarily friendly towards uh, many American uh, overtures, they certainly ac ac accepted and certainly were, were supportive of the assistance that the U.S. State Department, uh, the FBI, gave to the overall structure of Bolivia. This sounds like a pretty dangerous assignment. I, I can only imagine, uh, you know, what uh, your wife was thinking when you packed up and and, and left. <laughs> well, it's uh, we've been married over thirty years, so I, I guess you know it worked out well. But um, you know, uh, Jerry, when, when, as soon as I got down there too, and what uh, is a very very important aspect of any any foreign deployment is learning their system of law, because again. Uh, even though we maintain uh, the the option for U.S. prosecution, that's very difficult, and it's always preferable. It's always the the most favored aspect is to work hand in hand with the foreign government, to know their laws, know their rules of evidence, know admissibility, uh, and work hand in hand uh, to with that foreign government to uh, openly and uh, prosecute. Their, their, their terrorists, uh, their own crimes uh, in order to build a, a system of justice. Because at the end of the day, what do we stand for? What does the FBI stand for? The rule of law. And so this is something that by example, by training, by equipment, we wanted to establish in Bolivia. Um, of course, in the FBI is also an intelligence organization. And because of uh, the the numerous uh, Marxist groups, insurgencies throughout Latin America at the time, I facilitated an intelligence exchange with Peru, Argentina, Ecuador, and other law enforcement intelligence services uh, throughout Latin America. All these countries have extremely porous borders. And so guerrillas and insurgents and criminals can, can pass from one country to another, oftentimes at will. In particular, uh, Bolivia's closest neighbor, Peru, as I mentioned earlier, it was fighting a widespread, violent, and deadly battle against the, the terrorist group Sendero Luminoso. And when you look at the ideology of the Sendero Luminoso and the Zarate Wilca, well, they share many common beliefs and doctrines. And so I always suspected that uh, the Zarate Wilca had the potential, uh, had the opportunity to receive assistance from a much stronger, much more well-established Sendero Luminoso or other groups uh, throughout Latin America. So I was down there for several months alone, Jerry, uh, putting this together. But in January uh, 1991, 
my wife, Deirdre, left her job in Arlington, Virginia with a private investment firm. And she came to be with me in Bolivia. Again, we'd only been married uh, a little over a year. Wow. And, and that was something that the Bureau sanctioned? Yes. Yes. It was not a, uh, it was not a, um, I, I was down there really on long-term TDY, uh, even though we both had diplomatic passports. Um, it was not a PCS move. She just packed up her stuff and came down. Um, she had done a lot of studies in Latin America. Um, she's an Irish gal from New York, but uh, she was fluent, beautiful Spanish. And while she was there, when she came down, she was able to accompany uh, the visiting FBI forensic experts, you know, who'd come to assist uh, the Bolivian police. Uh, she translated for them. Sometimes she would act uh, as a, a victim in order to help train the, uh, the Bolivian police in, in interview techniques. She became very active in the diplomatic community and also in representational events uh, that were held with um, senior Bolivian uh, police uh, officials. Our goal was really to increase the trust and confidence of the Bolivian government, of the police with the FBI. And this is something, uh, you know, often people don't realize is the importance of of a spouse on an FBI assignment overseas. Well, um, your wife went beyond, <laughs> way beyond expectations uh, for, she, for spouse support. She did. She did. But, you know, we were uh, newly married and she loved Latin America, having studied there also in college. And so for us, it was uh, an absolutely exciting, uh, dangerous, uh, but a very, very exciting time. So we were working together down there. And on July the 19th, 1991, on that particular date, Jerry, I was back in the United States uh, testifying at an unrelated uh, criminal trial in Maryland. On that date, the, the terrorist assassin, Johnny Peralta, his brother, his name was Juan Domingo Peralta, was seen on a street uh, in La Paz. He'd always been wanted for questioning, though he was not a direct suspect in, in the attacks themselves. The SAIP, you know, the counterterrorism unit was called, and they arrived on the scene and attempted to stop him. He drew a weapon and shot at the officers uh, who returned fire and killed him. This, you know, of course, was, uh, was quite a, um, a tragic but a very significant event. The shooting itself enhanced my desire to, to properly equip the team, knowing that uh, eventually we may be in situations where, where we're fired upon. So... I received several um, bulletproof vests from the FBI Academy. We got the team together, Jerry, and I was very excited because I had been concerned about their safety. Um, the little equipment they had, uh, no body armor. And so with the FBI having provided me with these vests, I brought the team together and they were so excited. You know, I, I gave a vest to each one of them, you know, gracias, Roberto, thank you. Uh, they're putting the vests on, they're looking at it. So I gave a vest to each, uh, each officer, uh, the last one being uh, the colonel, the, the head of the team. And I picked up the vest and I said, Colonel, you know, here's your vest. And he stopped and he said, no. And I said, what? He goes, no, yo creo in destino, which means, no, I believe in destiny. And he picked up his vest and threw it on the ground. Um, no. and, and all the rest of the police officers destino destino and they all got their vests and threw them in the pile because they like their colonel were you know if they were to die they were going to die because it's destiny and so 
for well, about why wasn't it destiny for them to accept the vest? You know? Jerry, this is something that, that any anyone on a foreign assignment must understand. You have to look within the culture. You have to find ways to firmly but diplomatically accomplish the mission. And with this, I was able, after about an hour, to sit down and say, Colonel, I understand completely. You know, destiny awaits us all. But is not our destiny to protect Bolivia? Is not our destiny to to be there for our families? Is not our destiny, you know, to 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 do what is right? And together now we're a team. And so after you know several words like that, I was able to finally cajole the the colonel to say, "Okay, you're right, Robert." And so he put on the vest, and they all put on the vests, and they're all happy. And so we were able to get over um, that little um, bump in the road. But, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that's just so strange because I don't understand and of course I'm not I'm I'm not used to the culture, but how they didn't see the vest and even initially as just another part of the tools that the FBI had been providing for them. I, I think you know, I, I, I in hindsight I think they do, but at the time it was so it was new and, and I think really they're looking they understood that, but uh, a lot like in the Arab mentality, you know, inshallah, you know, if Allah wills it, it'll come to pass. And this machismo, this idea that I will let destiny, you know, rule my life, it was in some ways a, a very typical reaction uh, in this, uh, in the machismo uh, aspect of some Latin cultures. And so it, it, it took some time to, to describe how it, your destiny is so important, but also this equipment and this partnership with other entities is also your destiny and, and it's a good idea. So but we were able to overcome that roadblock, but that you, I would submit that happens more often than not in, in foreign relations as, as foreign advisors really throughout the world that the FBI uh, has. That's pretty interesting. So Jerry, um, the, the FBI and the department of state assisted the Bolivian uh, police with a reward campaign and publicity about the Zarate Wilka fugitives. Uh, and this was a source of many very good leads. The investigative operations and leads continued. More and more training was provided. Uh, and the, we saw an increase in the quality of investigative leads throughout Bolivia. We had leads and, and information about the terrorists being in the mountains, in the jungles, uh, in the cities, and in some of the smaller villages. Very, very positive information. A lot of good information coming in. But after a while, um, after a period of time, the leads started to dry up. No further information came in. What I found out was when credible information was obtained and we acted upon it, it seemed like we just continually just missed Peralta. For example, we had a house in La Paz we hit. And I could tell, I knew someone had been there. But when we got there, the house was empty. It had just been abandoned. There was a, a mining town called El Rudo, high in the mountains. We received very credible information that Johnny was there. When we finally got there, what was normally a very active town, it was like a ghost town. People were gone. There was nobody on the street. It was as if somebody had tipped the town off that the terrorist police were going to be there. Uh, there's a town called Copacabana. It's on the shores of Lake Titicaca, high in the mountains. That's where Susana uh, had a home, her family home. We had information she was there. We got there and we set up on our house of surveillance, but found that it appeared that, that someone had just left the house or, or someone had found out that the police were there. So this told me, Jerry, 
I suspected that there is a penetration within our team. Someone was giving information back to the Zarata Wilka. And from then on, I took very extra caution and was always alert and always armed. I was operating in Bolivia really completely alone. In addition, and I really can't say too much more about this, because of the entire situation uh, that, that I was facing there, it was important that I had a very few, very trusted officers that I could deal with. And these officers and I developed and operated a unilateral network of informants. I can disclose this now because informants are, are deceased or out of Bolivia. But this was critical because uh, of my suspicion that there was a penetration within the terrorist unit that was sympathetic to and reporting to the Zarata Wilka. So just a very few amount of senior trusted officers myself knew about this informant network. Things are going well, Jerry. The, the SAPE was, was operating well. We still had not arrested anybody. So in June of 1992, FBI HQ and Washington Field began requesting that I return to the United States. Again, good progress had been made with building and sustaining the counter-terrorist police, the SAPE. Uh, I was even awarded the Bolivian Police Medal of Honor and Merit you know, for establishing uh, the SAPE, improving the police forensics laboratory, and several other joint investigations and operations. However, there was absolutely no indication that Susana or Victor were in Bolivia. Uh, intelligence that we received suggested that both of them, Victor Prieto and Susana Zapana Hanover, had escaped to Cuba. And there is now confidence that after the FBI uh, would depart Bolivia, the investigation would continue with a trained and equipped counterterrorism unit. So the decision was made by by FBI headquarters uh, for me to return on August the 1st. So Deirdre and I made preparations. We packed our, our, our limited household goods up. And as is the, comp- the, the custom in Latin America, uh, several of our friends, both professional and from the embassy, put on what they call despedidas or goodbye parties for us in our honor. At this very same time, though, just before we're getting ready to leave, it was going to be the one-year anniversary on July the 19th of the death of Juan Domingo Peralta, the assassin's brother who was killed by the police during an arrest attempt. It's very important in Bolivia. Uh, it's a, a custom that, that is ancient that if you can, everybody comes home at the one-year anniversary on the death of a family member. I knew this, and uh, the, the terrorism police knew this. And so we thought that if, that if a Johnny Peralta was going to return to La Paz any time, it was going to be on that day. Well, one of my trusted Bolivian police officers and I met an informant, and he articulated to us several very specific indications on why he thought Johnny Peralta might be returning to La Paz or may even already be there. So we directed him, keep us informed and advise us immediately. So it's a Saturday night, and uh, we're, my, my wife and I are in the middle of our last goodbye party, our last despedida. And suddenly the host comes to me and says, oh, Roberto, there's a police officer outside the house, and he says it's urgent that he speak with you. So I went outside, and 
it was one of the trusted police officers. He told me that the informant we had met earlier had seen Peralta. The informant believed that Peralta would be in one of three possible locations in La Paz that very night to conduct a memorial for his brother. And so I, of course, there are no uh, mobile phones in Bolivia at that time, uh, and they probably wouldn't work anyway. It's so high in the mountains. So I use a phone uh, to call the SAPE colonel, the chief, and say, Colonel, get the men and the entire team to the, 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 the unit safe house and did not say anything about the reason. So you're going to have to explain to everyone what a safe house is and, and why it's used. Uh, Jerry, of course, I'm sorry. Um, a safe house is often used in, in special operations, in, in special uh, law enforcement and intelligence operations in order to conceal the activities of the team. For example, we, uh, if, if you have a, a unit that's working out of the field office, if somebody's watching that office, they can tell when vehicles come and go, who's there, where you're going, are there people working late at night, etc. And so we felt it important in Bolivia to establish a covert location, an offsite is what it would be. And we established an offsite called the safe house that was in a, a very nondescript uh, building in a um, uh, kind of a very open area uh, just outside uh, La Paz that we could go to have meetings, uh, stage operations uh, without anyone really noticing the comings and goings uh, of the team. So this is called our safe house. So I, 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 I ordered that everyone go to the safe house. And once everyone there was there, I told the colonel, no one leaves, no phone calls are made and account for every move of every team member. And so while the colonel is gathering the team at the safe house, I, uh, Deirdre, and, and the trusted police officer, we drive from, uh, from this goodbye party to the home of the investigating magistrate. And there we sit down and the police officer articulates the probable cause on why we believe on this night, Johnny Peralta, the assassin of the Mormons, the, 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 uh, the planner of the attack on George Schultz, would be that night. Well, I, I have to stop you for a minute. Uh, investigating magistrate. I've heard of a magistrate, and I, I'm not sure. Is that something that, that is just in Bolivia? or It's a little bit different, uh, Jerry. Uh, in many parts of the world, especially in Latin America, their legal systems are not based on common law like we have in the United States, but it's rather based on the Napoleonic Code. And under the Napoleonic Code, uh, any criminal case has two phases. Uh, the preliminary phase, and this is kind of a fact-finding phase, and it's headed up by uh, an individual they call the investigating magistrate. He or she is, is like an AUSA, like a prosecutor, but also has the power to issue warrants, uh, warrants for detention, uh, warrants for search, etc. cetera. Uh, and this power is vested in this one individual because he or she is finding the facts of what occurred. And then once the, the, the case has been made and it's ready to go to trial, it'll then proceed to what they call uh, the plenary or, or, or the plenary phase, which will be heard by a formal judge who will review all the rules of, of evidence, etc. So in this particular matter, the investigating magistrate with both a judge with power to grant warrants and a prosecutor.
So we speak, we speak with him and he's starting to put together the, the formal warrants for, for search. Deirdre and I go to the embassy. It's about 10.30 p.m. I know that three locations have to be hit simultaneously. We don't have within the terrorist unit enough equipment. And so the regional security officer at the embassy uh, grants me the approval to, to, to borrow equipment from, from his office. And so we literally load up our Jeep with handcuffs, gas grenades, adapters, shields, everything that we might need to stage three simultaneous operations. I knew that I would be very, very busy with the operational preparation and planning. In addition, my Spanish was not as proficient as, as Deirdre's, my wife's, because we thought we might have to shoot gas grenades into one or more of these residences where we thought Johnny would be. And so Deirdre goes down to, um, to the Marine security guard, the U.S. Marine security guard who's on duty that night in the embassy and asks him, hey, uh, how do you put this adapter onto this shotgun? And, you know, how do you put the grenade in it and, and uh, you know, operate it to, to shoot into a house if need be? And the, the Marine instructs my wife on how to do that. And so we go into the... Um, Wait a minute. Has, had she ever fired a weapon before? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, my wife had been a banker before we got married. And so <laughs> to have to have my bride of a uh, year and a half uh, teaching, you know, learning how to to put together, you know, put an adapter on the edge on the end of a shotgun, uh, set a gas grenade on there and then effectively articulate, uh, you know, the trajectory path to put it through a window was pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I have to. I have to say, I, I have to give a disclaimer here because there are a number of people who listen to this podcast who are in the process of applying to the FBI, or, or will uh, you know apply uh, to the FBI at some point. And I want them to know that this is not a requirement <laughs> that your spouse <laughs> that your spouse is not expected at all. To participate, you know, in your in your FBI career at at this level. No, I, I I'll tell you what, I'm I'm pretty lucky. Deirdre's a great sport. So, um, you know, Jerry, she she learns how to do this. We go back to the safe house, and we put the team in a semicircle. And again, uh, Deirdre, who had been a banker uh, before we got married, never shot a weapon before, and never in law enforcement from the military teaches these officers how to assemble and shoot a gas grenade gun. Pretty, pretty impressive. She is then uh, driven home because we have to get ready for this operation. We have a few hours before the warrants will be ready. We rehearse, we organize, we practice. And at this point, I, I just wanted to say at this point, you're pretty confident that no informant has passed on information that you're coming because everybody has been ordered to remain at the, at, at the safe house. Exactly. No one knew. This often happened. We'd have operations. People would come, you know, and, and then they're told what the mission is going to be. The same thing happened here. Everybody responded and no one, no one was allowed to call, to leave, to do anything other than remain in that briefing room. And so as we're getting ready to, to put the operation to organize and, 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 and 
gear up. I'm looking around to see who's nervous or agitated. You know, who, is there somebody there? Because I had a suspicion that we'd been penetrated. And I look and I see a senior lieutenant. He's, he's nervous. He's agitated. He, he'd already twice tried to make excuses on why he should leave the meeting, leave the safe house. And I told the colonel, keep an eye on him. Put him under the direct control of a senior trusted major and captain and deploy him on the team that's going to the least probable location because he might have been the penetration. So it's about three in the morning now and it's time to gear up and deploy. It's four in the morning now. We all drive out to the locations. It is absolutely frigid. Again, this is July, but in South America, the seasons are reversed. And so we're in the absolute dead of winter. And La Paz, again, is located at over 12,000 feet altitude. I go with the team that is going to hit the location where we suspect Johnny Peralta is. We line up and I, I go in the background because, again, it's important that I remain hidden, that there's no knowledge that the FBI is on site. I'm an advisor. I'm training, but I'm not part of that arrest team. And it's important from many perspectives that I stay in the background. We knew that the Peralta family had a big old dog, a guard dog, uh, you know, right inside their fence. And so we'd received authority to neutralize the dog. A big piece of meat has been seeded with with pretty uh, significant amount of poison. And they throw the the meat over the fence. And right before the dog is going to grab it, another dog comes out of nowhere and grabs the meat and runs off. And he was never seen again. But dogs start barking. And it's like, let's go. And so the fence is, the fence is opened. And the team is in a line. And the dog comes charging at the team. And there's a captain I know who just gets down and he actually growls back at the dog. I'm not kidding you. The dog looks at him and takes off. It's like, darn, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. And, and so I guess uh, by the captain's own appearance or, or growling, that dog took off. And so what we thought was a very vicious attack dog, uh, you know, just ran off. And so it's quickly, it's like, let's go hit it. I'm in the background. It's silence. And I'm counting that they make entry. And it's just a matter of seconds, Jerry, but it seems like an eternity. It's absolute silence. And then suddenly I see the, 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 the colonel and the major coming out with Johnny Peralta handcuffed. And Johnny says, Mama, call the lawyer, uh, Mr. Panique. I knew Panique. He was an attorney for the radical students and a frequent author of outrageous claims against the United States and against uh, the, the police. And so I'm just outside the house, but in the shadows, and I see everything. And Johnny Peralta walks right by me, and they put him into the Toyota, and they drive off. And the colonel quickly reports to me, when they entered the house, the mother denied anyone is there. But they saw that there were two beds. Both of them were warm. And they searched the house. They looked under the sink, and there was Johnny Peralta. They pulled him out. So from the time we arrived at that location at four in the morning to the time we left was five minutes total. 
the operation was a success. We met back at uh, the police headquarters and the other two teams uh, returned and they had no arrests or no incidents at the other locations. So my suspicion of a penetration was confirmed. It was the young police lieutenant. He was later determined to be a nephew of a prominent radical activist in Bolivia, who some considered to be the ideological leader of the Zarata Wilka. I'm confident that this lieutenant had been reporting our plans to his uncle, who then passed him on to Johnny Peralta. Wow. So Sunday morning dawns, and the arrest, of course, has made the news. It's all over the Bolivian radio. Monday, it's, it's full in the local and national papers. The assassin of the Mormons, the planner of the George Schultz motorcade attack, was in custody and would be going to trial within the next several months. What about the FBI? Was there a mention uh, that the FBI participated in the press? There was no mention of the FBI at all. My mission was accomplished. The capture was absolutely fantastic, and you know, I don't want to take away from that by asking the question, what happened to Susanna? Did you ever, was she ever captured? We have pretty good information that Susanna Zapana uh, later, in later years, was suffering from ovarian cancer. I don't know if she is still alive. We believe, again, that she has remained uh, in Cuba under the protection of the Cuban government. The following week, Deirdre and I returned to the U.S. After having lived such an unusual life for almost two years, uh, it was a little difficult to integrate back into to not only life in the U.S., but also the FBI. You know, in Bolivia, I had a, a big office in the U.S. Embassy, and I had been a key diplomatic official really throughout the country and the region. But now I find myself back at the old FBI Washington field office. Uh, it was then located at Buzzards Point. And there's no other way to say it, uh, Jerry. Uh, Buzzards Point field office was a dump. And I'm there as just another first office agent. You know, few people outside the extraterritorial squad knew me. And even on my squad, because I've been gone for two years, there were many new agents who had no idea who I was or where I had been. So you were just another body at that time. Yeah. Wow. I, I can imagine what that was like. And the fact that this case, was it ever mentioned? I was asked to, to put together a, a summary for FBI headquarters to give to Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, you know, as he represented Utah and would communicate uh, the capture to the Ball and Wilson families in Utah. And also, of course, to the Mormon Church. Uh, Senator Hatch, along with, uh, you know, the, the U.S. ambassadors to Bolivia, you know, seemed to be among the few in, in the U.S. government that were closely following the events down there and really were aware of the significance of Peralta's capture. You know, this was really one of the very first successful joint FBI foreign government extraterritorial terrorism investigations. And I know that it was later studied within the FBI as an example of how to conduct extraterritorial operations. You know, I guess in summary, uh, you know, a vicious terrorist assassin was captured. But most importantly, the families of Jeff Ball and Todd Wilson could finally come to closure on this tragedy. You know, but despite all this, uh, I never heard anything more about the case. When I turned in my 515, you know, the record of statistical accomplishment uh, for the FBI, documenting the capture of Johnny Peralta, my supervisor simply wrote, good job on uh, my copy. And that was about it. I guess that's why I feel 
this podcast and 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 I said it over and over again that this is more like a, a mission for me and I understand the show, social impact of, of the public hearing these stories, but it also gives the agents an opportunity to to tell their story because so many times in the FBI, when there is a big case or just an interesting local case, the SAC and the U.S. attorney go out in a press conference and they talk about the case as if they worked it. And the actual agents who, you know, sacrificed uh, many days and nights and their family life and their sleep and everything to work the cases, they are standing in the back of the room if at the press conference and that's the end of it. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many... I don't even know what the percentage is, but there seems to be a lot of agents that do write books. And, and I think it's because it, it gives you that outlet. Maybe the book won't become a, you know, a bestseller or be made into a, a movie or a TV show, but it just gives you the opportunity to say, or, or do the podcast even. It just gives people an opportunity to say, hey, look, I did this. I was here. I contributed. Yeah. No, Jerry, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, um, Jerry, within a, uh, a few days of returning back to Washington Field Office from Bolivia, I was handed an old, a box of old dusty files to look at. These files were about the hijacking of Egypt Air Flight 648 in 1985 and the hijacker, Omar Muhammad Ali Rizik. Wow. And so the adventure continued because that's the case where I first met you, the, where you reviewed that, uh, that hijacking. Wow. What I like to do at the end of every interview, and I, and I think that uh, we're now at the end, is to give my guests the last word. So what would you like to say? I guess, you know, what I, what I learned uh, in listening to, to your very eloquent words, and what I learned, uh, you know, over the next 20 years that as an FBI agent, was that there are agents throughout the world that conduct incredible investigations and operations every single day. And they put themselves at great risk. More often than not, there is never any news, reward, or recognition. Jerry, you know, we do what we do, and better than any law enforcement agency in the world, because it's our job and the nation depends on us. In this case, and so many others uh, done by the FBI, justice was served. And I think that's the reward that every FBI agent seeks. And that's the end of the interview at jerrywilliams.com, J-E-R-R-I williams.com. You'll find a photo of Bob Clifford, links to newspaper articles about the Mormon missionary murders. And you'll find lots of photos that Bob shared with me, including two photos of his wife, Deidre, with him in Bolivia. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast or what a podcast is, have them check out my How to Listen to a Podcast blog post on my website. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I have two recommendations for you this week. The first one is a crime novel, Rogue Lawyer by John Grisham. Now, the main character in Rogue Lawyer is defense attorney Sebastian Rudd. 
He reminded me of Mickey Haller from author Michael Connolly's Lincoln Lawyer series. Both characters are defense attorneys, and like Haller's Lincoln, Rudd's office is a vehicle too. It's a customized bulletproof van. I enjoyed the story, but the first-person narrative point of view is not the typical detailed John Grisham prose that I prefer, that, that I love, although it is what Connolly uses for his Lincoln Lawyer books. Seems like a lot of coincidences, doesn't it? Now, my next recommendation is exclusively for those listeners living in the Philadelphia area. On Sunday, March 17th, my friend Dina Marie from the Twisted Philly podcast is hosting a live show at the Helium Comedy Club in Philadelphia from 2.30 to 4.30. This live show will feature a meet and greet, true crime tales from Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. It benefits On Gracie's Wings, a nonprofit organization that supports children and families in foster care. Tickets are just $15 a person and all profits from ticket sales will be donated to On Gracie's Wings. For more information, just go to twistedphilly.com and click on events. Tickets are limited, so be sure to get yours early before they sell out. Thank you for listening to the very end of this episode. Soon you'll be able to pick up a copy of my first nonfiction book, FBI and Film and Fiction, a manual for armchair detectives, coming soon to all stores where books are sold. If you want to support this podcast, I hope you'll also consider purchasing copies of the crime novels in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. The crime fiction series features Special Agent Carrie Wheeler, Temptation, Corruption, and Redemption. The books are available as ebooks and paperbacks at Amazon.com, and Pay to Play is also an audiobook. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.